I'm glad you're all here, and I hope I'm all here. As I get older, I wonder if I'm all here or not, you know. Then I realize I'm only half here, because spiritually speaking, I'm sitting in heavenly places in Christ. So, this is, we're going to look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah has traits of a missionary. And we're going to take a look at training up a child, raising up a child, bringing up a child to be a missionary. Now, you, you train up a child. You, you know, you raise beef cattle or hogs, or you raise a roof, or you raise a barn, you raise Cain. And there's too much raising Cain going on that age. You know who Cain was. He killed his brother. Just check the news and see if there isn't a lot of too many, too much raising Cain going on. Too many brothers dying. So train up a child in the way he, sh he should go. And the go is, according to Matthew 28, 19, go and teach all nations. That's where you go. Train up a child to do that. Train up a child to go and teach all nations. Teach your child to love the Lord Jesus. Teach your child to be a follower of Jesus. See your child accept Jesus as his or her savior. Your first mission work, have a home base before you go. Have a good home base, then, then go out from there. Teach your child all things that Jesus taught his disciples. Teach your child that he or she has a father in heaven that loves him or her, and he is to be praised. Our Father in heaven deserves praise. And we are, we are made for him, for his pleasure. So we should live to please God. We should live to please him. So we need to teach our children to please God. So, look, Lynn and I didn't purpose to train up our three boys to be missionaries. Our purpose was to see them be Christ-like, to get saved, to love and praise the Lord, and serve Him, to live godly. They could see that the Bible was important to us. They could see that church was important to us. Prayer was important to us. Obedience was important to us. The Word of God was important to us. And we kept calling them back to that lifestyle. We have three boys. All three have a heart for the souls of men and are active in the work of seeing people come to Christ and teaching the Word of God. As far as missions, being missionary, being called to the mission field, it is best if God does that. Uh, we train them to be Christ-like. We train them to know Jesus. We train them everything so that when God does want someone in the mission field, they have the fundamentals. 
So train up your son or daughter in the way they should go. You might say, I don't have children. This message is not for me. Well, if you are a child of God, then train up yourself to be a missionary as his child. None of us are beyond what God would have for us if we paid attention to it. We teach our children what God teaches us so we can learn ourselves from the Word of God. So what is a missionary? Okay. A missionary is someone that goes on a mission. My first mission I remember when I was a kid on a farm, my dad would connect the trailer up to the tractor. He'd throw some fence posts in there, some barbed wire, some tools. And he would go out and mend the fence all the way around our property. No breaches in it. It had to be complete all the way around. It provided security. It provided a safe place for our cattle so they was within our borders. And there wasn't strays in there. So it was a matter of taking care of our own. And it reminds me of what Nehemiah is doing in building a wall. They're providing a safe place where they can take care of their own and worship the Lord. Another mission I remember well was huge. It was to go to the moon. Now, a lot of you, if I asked you, is it possible for a man to walk on the moon? Oh, yeah, it's happened. When I was a kid, it hadn't happened yet. If they asked me that question, I'd say, man, I don't know. Maybe we'll see. And we did see. Between USA and Russia, who would be the first man on the moon? United States Apollo 11 was the first crewed mission to land on the moon. Crewed, C-R-E-W-E-D, on the moon, July 20th, 1969. That was a big mission, and it was a rewarding day when they accomplished the mission. Same thing with God's mission. There's rewards when the mission is accomplished. There's a day of rewards. Another one that comes to mind, another big mission was D-Day, June 6, 1944, when 133,000 troops landed on the beaches of Normandy, France. My dad was part of that mission. I heard that one in 10 didn't make it off of the beach, so that was a vicious place to be. That was a big day, and there was a rewarding day for that, too, May 8th, 1945, when there was victory in Europe. So there's rewards for completing the mission. The characteristics of a mission, you plan for it, you, pre you prepare for it, you decide how you're going to pay for it, and you, you pray about it, and you, and you go and do it. As we line it up here at MBT, pray, prepare, give, and go. By far the biggest mission ever, the biggest mission is one that God gives us, and it concerns everyone on earth. It concerns the whole world. He gives us the opportunity to be part of that mission, to reach people for Jesus Christ. The Creator God loves us so much, He wants to save us from hell. And He commissions us 
to be part of that mission. He gives us the opportunity to be part of the mission. And it's more than an opportunity. It's also a commandment. He says, go. That sounds like a commandment to me. In my, in my Bible study, in my Bible reading, I was reading in Nehemiah, er, Nehemiah, when James, my oldest son, I don't know if you know, Paul is my middle son back there with the beard. His older brother is James. His younger brother is Nate. There's, there's three of them, <laughs> three sons. So it was suggested by James that I speak on raising a missionary, and I was reading in Nehemiah in my regular Bible reading. So I thought, yeah, that's where I'll stay. I'll stay right there in Nehemiah. Now, let's take a look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. First thing I want to say is, it seems like the theme in, in Nehemiah was about doing a good work. It's about doing a good work. In fact, the term good work is first found in, in the book of Nehemiah. So, and the work that he was doing was a work, obviously, of the Lord, so it was a good work. So let me read a little bit here. In Nehemiah chapter 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, and it came to pass in the month Chislu, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity that are in the province, that are in the province, are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. The first thing I notice is the words of Nehemiah the son of Hekeliah. You know, God is family-oriented. God is a family man. God is family-oriented. A lot of times he'll say, so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. In fact, he'll take you from Jesus, the son of, the son of, the son of, all the way back to Adam, the son of God. So God keeps records. And sons are important, and daughters are too. But the the uh, family, the kinship to Jesus follows the sons. And many times you'll see the family line follow the son. That's what you see in the Bible. Now, like Adam passed on his faith to his son Isaac, Hekeliah probably pass on his faith to his son Nehemiah. And that's what we're to do. We're to pass on our faith and hopefully our sons and daughters grab a hold of that faith and, and make it their own. So we need to pass on our faith. And the Bible is about God's Son 
coming to save the sons on this earth, this, all of us. It's, it's about that. The Son of God came to redeem us that we might become sons of God, part of his family. God is family-oriented. This is a family business. We need to let our children know this. Hebrews 2.10, For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. We are children of Abraham. Romans 4.16, Abraham, who is the father of us all. So the son kinship is important. The sons carry the seed. The sons and daughters work together on this. The sons carry the seed of the children of the family line. The daughters carry the sons of the seed of the family line. They work together. And no wonder God saw man was alone and said, this is not good. I mean, how could we replenish the earth with just the man, right? So the man and woman need to work together in the mission. They work together to replenish the earth. They work together in the mission of God, too. It takes both. We both work together in that. The man and the woman, mom and dad, they raise up children. So just like God wants the man and the woman to replenish the earth, he wants us to raise up he wants us to raise up children that are interested in building the kingdom of God. So it isn't just replenishing the earth. It's also populating the kingdom of God, seeing the kingdom of God grow. It is important to train up your boys to be godly men and, is, and be Christ-like. And it's important to train up your girls to be godly women, to be godlike. So the first point, be involved in a good work. The work of a missionary is a good work. It's Nehemiah 2.18, by the way, where good work is first mentioned. So what kind of character traits should a missionary have? All right, here's one. Our heart should be with our God and God's people, including all the people that God would reach. So it's not just a matter of hibernating. We also are interested in the people that God would reach. We have to reach out. Nehemiah lived in Shushan the palace. As I was in Shushan the palace, he didn't live in the slums, in poverty, or anything like that. Nehemiah lived in luxury with the king of Persia, the king over 127 provinces. Take a look at Esther chapter 1 and see what kind of crib that was. See where Nehemiah lived. See the luxury he lived in next to the king of Persia. The site of the palace is in modern-day Iran, uh, Khuzestan province, Iran, and it you can still see the art in the archaeological archaeological digs 
what's left of it. So it must have been a, a mammoth place. <laughs> it must have been really something to behold. But here's the deal. We should teach our children and show them that our lifestyle, that we are willing to sacrifice the comforts of this world for the mission that God would have us join. We got to teach them not to get too comfortable, not to sit on the couch too much, not let that be their lifestyle. We should have God's heart for people as Nehemiah did. When he heard the affliction and reproach of his people, he sat down and cried and fasted and prayed. Could we teach our children to have a heart like that for the lost, the people who are condemned to hell? When you see this, you should have a heart that would make you to cry and weep over them and pray for them and be involved, be involved in a, in a good work. Nehemiah would leave his good life behind and go to the mission field. James and Rosie, with two young children and a third on the way, left everything behind to go to the mission field on the other side of the world. How long would they be gone? I don't know. They had one-way tickets. As long as the work took, as long as God would have them there. We just saw Jisoo leave for Vietnam and the rest of them that are going there. And how long are they going to be there? Well, as long as God would have them there. So we have to teach our children it's not important of the things we have as much as it is the souls of men around the world that need Jesus because eternity is a long time to be in the wrong place. So Nehemiah had a heart for the people of God and his work. We should be less concerned about our pleasures and riches and more concerned about the people that God loves. God has a great love for us, a great love for people. And we should too. Nehemiah learned that God's people were in great affliction and reproach. They were disgraced and in shame, and they had no secure place to call home where they were protected. The city wall was broken down. Nehemiah prayed. That's the next thing. We should be a people of prayer. That's the next point I want to make. Jesus spent time in prayer, and we should spend time in prayer. We should be a people of prayer. He prayed to the one true creator God. This, this, this is an extraordinary prayer. Let's take a look at the prayer that Nehemiah had starting in verse 4. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He really got into it and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him 
and observe his commandments. He got a hold of the one true God. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, pray our Father which art in heaven. And that's, that's what Nehemiah did, O Lord God of heaven. Verse 6, let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now day and night. He continues to pray. He doesn't give up. For the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. He realizes a basic problem. He realizes the separation from God, and that's sin. And we should realize that too, that it's sin that separates us from God. And we should let our children know that it's sin that takes you away from God. And God paid the price for it. That's totally amazing, you know. We can't dig in our pocket and pay the price. God paid the price. We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name. It's interesting, verse 8, Remember, I beseech ye the word that thou uh, commandest. Uh, I imagine that's more for Nehemiah's sake. I'm sure God remembers, and, and God is saying, that oh, boy, you remember too, you know. I got you. Now these are thy servants and thy people, whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper, I pray thee. Thy servant this day and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. So let's, let's just go over that real quick. He prayed to the one true creator God, teach our children how to pray to the one true God, Great and terrible God. Terrible? Yeah, the God that you should be afraid of if you disobey him. You should, you should be afraid of God if you disobey him. Get it right, you know. I'm sorry, Lord. I, I did this. God that keeps his covenant, his word. And Nehemiah realized that. He, he thought he was reminding God, but I'm sure God already knew that, you know. God that keeps his covenant, his word. God that keeps his mercy. God always has mercy. You cannot get far enough away from God that he can't bring you back and have mercy on you. So if you think, or if you're dealing with someone who thinks they have a sin that can't be forgiven, nonsense, tell them. Tell them nonsense. God has mercy. He can forgive it. He can forgive all sin. That's the mercy of God. 
This is a God that met Moses on Mount Sinai. This is the God we're talking about. The God that Nehemiah is praying to. The God that we need to teach our children lives and is waiting for us to talk to him. This is a God that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6.1, high and lifted up. And the seraphims were crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of a mighty army, the Lord of hosts. He is holy, holy, holy. That's amazing that we can approach the God that is so holy, you know? Holy, holy, holy. Revelation 4.11, this is a God that created all things for his pleasure. This is a God that Nehemiah is praying to. And again, because God created all things, including you, you and me, for his, his pleasure, wouldn't it make sense that we live to please God? I mean, wouldn't that just follow through? Wouldn't that be the right thing to do? So Nehemiah prayed. We should teach our children to pray as well. Nehemiah wanted to be sure God was hearing him and seeing him, you know? He said, let thine ear now be attentive. Lord, have I got your ear? Let thine eyes be open. Can you see? Can you see what I'm saying, Lord? So Nehemiah wanted God's attention. He really did. We should pray like we have God's attention. God is ready to listen to us. God sees us, and he's ready. It's more or less being honest with God, actually. You know, that's what it's about, being honest with God. He is not sleeping. He's not sleeping or on a journey like possibly the gods of the prophets of Baal were in 1 Kings 18.27. Remember Elijah saying, maybe your God went on a journey. He's not at home. Knock on the door. He's not there. He's gone to the store to get something. I don't know where he is, but don't stop praying. Work at it. Be active in prayer. Make it an effectual, fervent prayer. James 5.16. Effectual, fervent prayer. I thank the Lord for Keith McHudson. He heads up the prayer team that meets every Friday morning at 6.30. And he is faithful at that. And that's effectual, fervent prayer. Effectual, you know, it, it affects how things work in your life. You know how I know if I'm involved in effectual, fervent prayer? Because it affects me. I find that what I'm praying, the person I'm praying for, let's say, doesn't change as much as I do. And I approach the person differently, you know, in, in the love of God. And, you know, effectual fervent prayer. So confess your sin in prayer, come clean. Confess your own. He confesses his own sin and the sins of his people. Understand that it is your own sin and disobedience that cause you to be separated from God. God is always ready to receive us back. 
So we always need to remember to get a hold of the one true God when we pray, okay? I need to see where I am here. Sorry. I don't use a computer, so. Nehemiah starts his prayer. Yeah, take one more look at this. Nehemiah starts his prayer beseeching the Lord in one five, and he ends his prayer beseeching the Lord in one eleven. And you say beseech, what does that mean? That's a, you know, an old English word, beseech. Well, why, why does King James English use words that I don't understand, you might say. Why is that? Why is that? Why does a King James English use words that I don't understand? Well, I don't know. I, I might say this. Why do we change the King's English so we don't understand the words? That's what's happened, you know. The King's English is still good. We've just changed it, which is kind of sick. Another word they change. At the end of his prayer, he is asking for mercy before this man. I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was a king's cupbearer. Okay, Nehemiah knows he needs to go meet the king. He needs to go sit with the king. So he went to the king of the universe first and got ready. And he's asking God the Father, God the King of the universe to help him as he goes and meets the king because you can have your head taken off if you approach the king and you're uninvited. So he said, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. So Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. Let's read. And it came to pass in verse in chapter two, and it came to pass in a month, Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. So he went to he went he asked us to go see the king as a king's cupbearer. Now, let me say this about cupbearer. Cupbearer has a special place in Scripture. You can see it back back when um, Pharaoh took his chief baker, if you remember back in the Old Testament, and he took his chief baker and lifted his head off his body. But the Pharaoh took his chief butler and lifted up his head on his body to a place of honor to deliver Pharaoh's cup into his hand. So the cupbearer has a place in Scripture where he was saved from dying, from death, and was put in a special place. Now, I am told that the cupbearer drinks the Kool-Aid first, if he dies, a king doesn't drink it. That's just the way I heard the story about, about the cupbearer. Now look at this. Jesus bare the cup of the wrath of God for us. 
Jesus was our cupbearer. Matthew 26, 39. Oh, my Father, Jesus said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And 1 Corinthians 10, 16, that we might take the cup of blessing of the communion of the blood of Christ. Jesus is our cupbearer. Now, notice how close the cupbearer is to the king. Close enough to read his face, how he is feeling, his heartfelt feelings. He says in verse 2 of chapter 2, where the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid. Okay, here's the deal. We need to stay close to the king. We need, that's, we need to stay close to the king so the king can understand how we're feeling. In prayer, we're staying close to the king. The king saw that Nehemiah was sad and asked what he could do for him. Nehemiah prayed immediately because in order for Nehemiah to talk to the king, he needed to speak right to the king. They were, you, have to, you have to respect the king. And that's a lesson point. Teach your children to respect and obey authority. So Nehemiah prayed immediately and, and on the spot to God for authority to speak to the king about going on a mission. Do you know that our king is always ready to help us? Our king is always ready to help us. Some verses for that is Psalm 46.1, Hebrews 4.16, John 14.13 and 14, John 15.7, John 15.16. And uh, if your request is according to God's will and you ask in Jesus' name, you've got it. And that's what prayer does. Prayer aligns us with God's will. Nehemiah asked permission to go on a mission for his people. That's his request. In verse 3, let the king live forever. That's a good way to start. Then he asked for his request to go on a mission to help his people. If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou would send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulcher, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, for how long shall thy journey be, and when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. So Nehemiah's prayer was answered because the king decided he would send him. The king wanted to know how long the mission would be, you notice. In parentheses, the queen also sitting by him. 
What if you read it without that? The king said unto me, For how long shall thy journey be? It reads pretty well, but God said, Put a little parentheses in here so people know that the queen was sitting by him. His helpmeet was sitting by him. I guess it was not good for the man to be alone. I guess it was not good for the man to be alone. Probably she whispered in his ear. Probably she whispered in his ear to ask this question. How long will you be gone? This could be Queen Esther. Not saying it is exactly, but it could be. It, in my inspired center column, it says probably Queen Esther. But look at this. I learned that Artaxerxes was not just a name, it was a title. It was a title of several Persian kings, okay? The king on the throne in the book of Esther, of course, is Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, a title, Artaxerxes. And this was the same time period. So it could have been, this is Queen Esther sitting there. Don't take that as absolute truth, because it doesn't absolutely say that, but that's who it could be. And I was thinking, okay, if that's the case, we have family here. We have Queen Esther, who is a Jew, and Nehemiah, who is a Jew. So there's a family connection there. Now, my wife, the queen of our house, she, she would ask questions like that because that's the way moms are. Moms need to know or mothers need to know or moms need to know about their family and family members. So naturally her heart would be, oh man, here's, here's someone that's related in my family. I wonder how long is it going to be go gone? Hey King, ask how long they're going to be gone, you know? So... I'm just saying, moms are that way. Moms are concerned about the family. So it pleases the king to send me. And it says here, after, I guess, I guess he got to answer those questions, then it pleased the king to send him. And that, you know, of course it would please the king because the king pleases his wife. It's, also, it's always good to please your wife. I mean, if she whispers something in your ear, pay attention to it and do what you can about that. You know, happy wife, happy life, happy spouse, happy house, all this stuff. Now, Nehemiah respects authority and position. And he said, if it please the king, in verse 7, that's court etiquette, if it please the king. When I was on a jury one time in the courtroom, the, the one uh, lawyer stood up and said, if it please the court. So that's etiquette. That's what you do. You don't say, 
hey, king, hey, dude, you know, you say, if it pleases the king. So we need to teach our children to, to obey and respect authority. Now, so Nehemiah, while he's there, he's asking for help from the king, and the king gives him help. So he goes on the mission. So go and know that God is with you. That's another point that you need to teach your children. Go and know that God is, is with you. If you bring them up to know the Lord, to be in prayer, and you teach them to work, you teach them to respect authority, when it comes time to go, you can say, go, for God is with you. Even if it's on the other side of the world, wherever it is, you can, you can know that they go and God is, is with them. Don't be afraid of the adversary. The first thing that happened here is they met the adversary. They met people that was against what was going on, people that was against the work of the Lord, that the Lord was doing. So don't be afraid of the adversary because whenever you start doing the Lord's work, you attract the attention of the devil. So just expect it. You're going to attract the attention of the devil. So, 2 Timothy 1.7, For God hath given us a spirit, not as, has not given us a spirit of fear, but power and love and of a sound mind. We need to teach our children not to fear these things. They're going to find it if they go on a mission field, but don't fear it. Be strong in the Lord. A healthy fear of God will give us power, love, and a sound mind. Also, if we're faithful to the mission that God has called us to, we can have a part in seeing his kingdom grow. We can be a part of that, and there's rewards for that. There's rewards. There's a day of rewards. There's rewards in heaven. Uh, there's a lot more Nehemiah, but let me conclude by saying, train your child, train up your children. Don't just let them grow up. Train them up in the things of the Lord. Train yourself as you're going along. I mean, we can learn too. We're never too old or too grown up to learn from the Word of God. And always live to please God. Make it a purpose to please God. Have godly traits that your children can see, like a love for God, a love for His Word, obedience, prayer, your children should see this in you. A lot of times, children will watch you and you don't know it. They're watching to see if you're true to what you're teaching, what you're saying. Give them a work ethic. You know, teach them to work. Out in the field, it's not easy. In the mission field, it's not easy. Teach them to work. Worship and fellowship. Ephesians 5.1, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. One other thing I might say, if you get a chance, read chapter 8. Chapter 8 is the importance that they put on the Word of God. And it's absolutely incredible. 
Let me read one verse, A8. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. It seems like that's what we try to do here at MBT. I kind of wonder, it sounds like Pastor Miles was there. Does that make sense? You know, give the sense. <laughs> but I'm just saying, they were serious about the Word of God. We need to, too. If your children don't see you in the Word of God, they, they're going to think it's not important. Yeah. So, I mean, go through Nehemiah. It, it's old, an Old Testament mission that actually lines up with the New Testament mission of church planning. You'd be surprised how much that parallels as you go through it. So, I'm going to... I'm going to let Mark come up here and close this out. But I, I just pray that you all gain something from, from uh, this study of Nehemiah.